What is it that we are ultimately seeking and desiring as followers of Jesus? I know it's a little deep to start out with, right? But it's an important question, and I think one of the ways we can chase down the answer to that question is by asking, yes, but why, to whatever answer we come up with first. So if I said, why is it that you wanted to follow Jesus? Why is it that you wanted to be a Christian? You might say, well, you know, the first answer that comes to mind is that I wanted my sins to be forgiven. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed a Savior. And so I trusted in Jesus. And I might say, okay, yes, but why? Why did you want your sins to be forgiven? And you might say, well, because I, I didn't want to go to hell. And I might say, okay, yes, but why? Why didn't you want to go to hell? You might say, well, I'd a whole lot rather go to heaven, right? I mean, that seems pretty easy. But then what if I said, yes, but why? Why do you want to go to heaven? What is it about heaven that makes you want to go there? Then you might say, well, because that's where God is. And if I said one more time, yes, but why? Why do you want to be where God is? Then you might say, because I was created to be with him. That, I think, is the ultimate answer, even if we haven't stopped to think about it, that's the ultimate answer for why we want to follow Jesus, want to belong to Jesus. We know that we were created by God, for God. We were created to be in His presence, right? To to live with Him. And that's why forgiveness is so important, right? It's so that we can be with God. Now again, you might not step back and think about questions like that very much. After all, a lot of the time we just have our heads down doing the next thing, right? Taking kids to school or practice or running errands and getting groceries and going to work and on and on and on. And following Jesus makes a difference in all those everyday things too, right? As we seek to love and serve others and as uh, we ask for forgiveness on a daily basis as we fall short of what we know God has called us to do. But if we stop for a moment and raise our heads, as it were, and think about why we are here, why we want to be forgiven, why we want to belong to Jesus. Hopefully, ultimately, we can see that the answer is God. We were made for God. We want to be with God. We think sometimes about the longing for a return to the Garden of Eden. Right? That there's that desire for paradise, for a place that's beautiful and perfect and untainted by sin and anxiety and distress and all those things. But Eden's not Eden without God. Moses, when he led the people out of slavery in Egypt, he had heard God's voice. Right? God had spoken to him at the burning bush. God had spoken to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai when he gave them the Ten Commandments. And yet even still, Moses pleaded with God and said, Please show me your glory. That's what I ultimately want. King David expressed something similar in Psalm 27, verse 4, when he said, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. That desire, I think, is not only at the the heart of what we are longing for, what we are chasing after, it's also, I think, at the heart of what Jesus is saying to His disciples in John 14. So we're going to look at John 14 this morning, starting in verse 1, and we'll work our way through to verse 11. And I just, I'm going to say at the outset that I'm probably going to spend most of the sermon on verses 1 through 3. So if we get to verse 3 and you're like, whoo, got a lot more verses, how long is this going to take? The, the, the rest of the passage will go through quite a bit more quickly. But let me read for us John 14, verses 1 through 11. Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Alright, now as we look at John 14, here's the the first thing we need to remember, and uh, occasionally I draw our attention to this, is that that big number 14 there on the page in your Bible, John did not put that there. And more than that, Jesus did not say to his disciples in the middle of this conversation, okay guys, time out, new chapter, forget everything I just told you, we're going to talk about something totally different. What Jesus is saying here at the beginning of chapter 14 follows immediately upon what he was saying to his disciples in chapter 13. When he tells them here in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. The reason he tells them that is he's just told them some things that are troubling to them. He's just told them that one of their own number is going to betray him. He's just told them that Peter, who at least from the perspective we get from the Gospels, seems to be the leader and spokesman of the disciples. He's just told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the night's out. He's already told his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified and killed and will rise on the third day. They've got lots to be troubled about. They don't want Jesus to leave. They don't fully understand the things that he's told them about his departure and how it's going to take place. 
We know on one occasion uh, from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Peter tried to rebuke Jesus when he talked about what was going to happen to him. That's not going to happen to you. You're not going to be killed. That's not the kind of Messiah you are. Jesus had to say, you don't have in mind the things of God, Peter. You have something else in mind. You're on the wrong track. So they had reason to be troubled, in a sense. But Jesus tells them not to be troubled. And he gives them reasons why they shouldn't be troubled, even though the the person they have committed themselves to, the person they are following, is about to undergo uh, this terrible trial and ordeal as he is betrayed and handed over to his enemies and is, you know, brought up on false charges and then sentenced to death and experiences crucifixion. Why should they not be troubled with all of that coming? Well, first Jesus tells them in the last part of verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. When we are troubled, anxious, afraid, concerned, life feels out of control or overwhelming, the Bible over and over and over points us back to putting our trust in the Lord who is in control. We're not in control, and when we really begin to feel that, sometimes we get troubled. The Bible says, trust in the Lord. Believe in God. What's especially significant here is Jesus says, not only believe in God, but he says, believe also in me. Now, what would you make of that if anybody else but Jesus said that? Hey, you're in trouble? Believe in God and believe in me. You're going to put yourself right next to God in that statement? Jesus does. Why? Because Jesus is God. Over and over, John has showed us in this gospel that Jesus not only is equal to God, Jesus knows that about himself. Jesus knows that he is God in the flesh, and he is not afraid to tell his disciples that as he does here. You trust in God, you also trust in me, because I am God in the flesh. And then he tells them another reason why they shouldn't let their hearts be troubled. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So, one of the reasons he doesn't want them to be troubled about his departure is that his departure is going to be for their good. He's going to prepare a place for them. Now, uh, if you've been reading and, and, and studying in the Bible and listening to Bible studies for a long time, you've probably had this conversation, right, where you say, I was reading this passage and I've read it a hundred times and today something jumped out at me that I've never seen before. Okay, here's what happened to me this week as I was studying this passage. Heard this passage who knows how many times, right? Had never really stopped to think about what Jesus means by the phrase, my father's house. What is Jesus talking about when he says, in my father's house are many rooms? Well, normally, we, at least I had just been thinking about like, you know, A house, my house, your house, the kind of house you and I live in. But in the Bible, what is God's house? 
It's the temple. All through the scripture, remember David said, okay, I, I'm living in a nice house. God's still dwelling in this tabernacle, this tent that we've been dragging around since Egypt. Right? Or since we left Egypt. So, if I'm living in a house, I think God ought to have a house, David said. So, David was going to build God a temple. And God told David, no, you're not going to build me a house, but your son is going to build me a house. Right? What did we see earlier in, in, uh, in, or hear earlier in Psalm 27, verse 4? David says, here's, here's what I'm seeking after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, when we hear that, we know he's talking about the temple. Right? But Jesus here in John 14 is talking about the same thing, but at a different level. Because he's not talking about, I'm going to go into the temple in Jerusalem to prepare a place for you. He's saying, I'm going to go back to heaven, right? Back into God's presence, the Father's presence. And I'm going to prepare a place for you in God's heavenly temple. In other words, I think he means something like what we read in Hebrews chapter 9. Again, this is not, I had not put all this together until studying this again this week. And and maybe you haven't. Uh, put all this together before as well. But when I saw how all this fit together, it got me really excited, right? So Jesus is saying, I'm going to God's heavenly temple. There's lots of room in there. Anybody can come that wants to, right? And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And here's how the writer of Hebrews, I think, describes the same thing that Jesus is talking about, just in different words. This is Hebrews 9, starting in verse 24. It says, Christ has entered... Not into holy places made with hands. That would be the earthly holy place that people built, right? Out of stones and wood and whatnot. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's where he's gone. Now, why does Jesus have to leave in order to prepare that place for us. Like, is he going up there to do, like, carpentry or interior design? No. What is he doing? His departure is necessary because his departure is his death. And it is necessary for him to leave by dying to prepare that place for us, not because there's something wrong with it, but because we can't enter it unless he does something for us first. He has to lay down his life. He has to shed his blood so that our place can be prepared, secured there. That's what Hebrews goes on to say. It says, so he didn't go into, you know, the earthly uh, temple. He went into the heavenly temple. He said, nor was it to offer, he didn't go to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what Jesus' departure is. It is his sacrifice of himself by which he prepares a place for us in God's 
heavenly temple, God's heavenly dwelling place, so that we can be there with God because of what Jesus has done for us. So when he says, if I told you I'm going to go prepare a place for you, right? verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Often we think of that, and there's, there's difference of, uh, of opinion and interpretation here. Is Jesus talking here in verse 3 about, I'm, gonna come, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and take you to that place. Is Jesus talking about, like, when we die, he comes and gets us to take us to heaven? That's possible. That's one possible interpretation. I don't think that's what he's talking about here, but it could be. And I wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to argue with you about that. Because it is true, right, that when we die, if you're a Christian, when you die, your spirit goes immediately into the presence of God. The Bible is really clear about that. Paul says, it's better for me to depart and be with Christ. If I die now, I get to go immediately to be with Jesus. Paul also says to be uh, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right? That is what happens. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. And someone, uh, a commentary made this case to me several years ago, and I, and I had never thought about it before, but ever since then, I, I, I think it's right that when Jesus says, I will come again and will take you to myself, I think the most natural way to read that is he's going to come back for us to take us to be with him, right? And that's Hebrews. If we keep following that passage in Hebrews, here's what it says next. He says, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here as well. That I'm going to come again. I'm going to return to take you to be with, my, uh, with me. right? So you can be in my presence. Now, if that's what he means here, then we have another question. You might think, okay, well, wait a minute. I've been paying attention to your preaching, and I know that you have said over and over and over, where we're going in the end is not heaven, per se, but new heavens and new earth, right? That's the end of the story. That's Revelation 21 and 22, new heavens and new earth. So Jesus comes back, and then we have this new creation, and God dwells with us there. So how can you say, Jesus is saying, I'm going to repair the heavenly temple for you, a room for you in God's house in heaven, and I'm going to come back and take you there. If you also said, the Bible says, that when Jesus comes back, he's not taking us up to heaven, he's taking us to be with him here in this new creation. Which one is it? Well, it's both. And here's why. In Revelation 21, when it describes the new heavens and the new earth, it describes the new Jerusalem in that new heavens and new earth as a temple. In fact, not just as a temple, but as the Holy of Holies, that innermost part of the temple on earth where the Ark of the Covenant was placed and that was God's footstool, that was God's dwelling place, that was the place where only the high priest could enter and he could only enter there once a year. When John describes the new Jerusalem, he describes it in terms of the Holy of Holies. So that city, that new Jerusalem where we're going to dwell, it's like... 
dwelling in the Holy of Holies, where the very presence of God is. In fact, John says, I saw New Jerusalem. And what's the, if you were, if you were a, you know, like a first century Jew, and you were thinking about Jerusalem, what is the main thing you'd be looking for in the heart of Jerusalem? The temple, right? And so John sees the perfect new Jerusalem, and he says, you know what? I didn't see a temple there. Why was there no temple in that city? John says there's no temple in that city because God himself and the Lamb, that's Jesus, God himself is the temple. Now, if God is the temple, it has no separate temple, the city itself is the Holy of Holies. And then we back up to the beginning of chapter uh, Revelation 21, we can put all this together. Because after John says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth, Then he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then he says, now is the dwelling place of God with men. I will dwell with them and they will be my people and I will be their God. So here's here's how we put all that together. Jesus leaves, he dies, in order to prepare for us a place in God's heavenly temple So that when he returns and comes back for us to take us to be with himself, not only is he coming back, but also will come down from heaven, this heavenly temple, God's heavenly dwelling place will come down to earth in the new heavens and the new earth, and we will dwell with him in our resurrected, glorified bodies in this resurrected, so to speak, new creation, new heavens and new earth where there's no more sin and no more death and God will come to dwell with us there. We won't need a temple to go into as though God's presence is you know, restricted to one particular place. We will all have full and complete and total access to God's presence all the time for all of eternity. Amen. That is the good news of the gospel. Not only... That Jesus died to forgive you of your sin, as absolutely fundamental and important as that is. But why did he die to forgive you of your sin? So that he could bring you to be with him and his Father and the Spirit in their dwelling place forever. That's what he's talking about. And so you can understand when you grasp that big picture why Jesus can look his disciples in the eye hours before his crucifixion and says, guys, don't be worried about it. Don't be troubled. If you understood what I'm preparing for you, securing for you on the other side of this, you'd not be worried. You'd not be troubled. You'd not be distraught you know, not only is it going to be okay, it's going to be better than okay. That's what Jesus promises his disciples. That's what he promises us. That's what he offers to everyone who will confess their sin and trust in him and call upon him as Lord. And that's at the bottom what we're all longing for and all the things that we chase after and all the things we pursue all the the dreams and longings we have about a, a, a life that is joyful and at peace and happy all those things 
All of those desires are aiming us at what Jesus is promising us here. We're just usually chasing it in the wrong places. That's what he promises. Now, we'll go through the rest of it more quickly, like I mentioned. Verse 4, Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. So I'm leaving to go prepare a place for you, and you know the way to that place. And Thomas says, "Mm, do we? He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? How, How can we know how to get where you're going? I'm not even sure I understand where you're going. So Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the way to where I'm going. I am the way and the truth and the life. He still hasn't answered the implied question from Thomas. Where are you going? But then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. And you know how to get there. And Thomas says, no, I don't know how to get there. I don't even know where you're going. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father so that you can go to the Father. And the only way to the Father is me. You know me, so you know the way to the Father. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm bringing you. That's what he means when he says, I am the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you want that... Uh, life with God forever. You want to be in the new creation. You want to dwell with your creator. You want your sins forgiven. You want that fellowship with God that deep down all of us are longing for because that's what we were created for. Jesus says the only way to get that is through me. That's why I came. That's why I'm going. That's why I'll come back. Everything I'm doing is about bringing you there. And you may not think you know the way. But if you know me, then you do. Because I'm the way. The only way you can get there is through me. So he says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It seems to indicate that they don't know Jesus as well as they should. right? Which is, does not surprise us at this point, because there are lots of points in which the disciples... Hear Jesus say something and they say, they they either say, we don't know what you're talking about, or they kind of talk amongst themselves. Do you know what he was talking about? Did you know what he meant by that? Or the way they respond shows they clearly didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And Philip here, um, well, have you ever had one of those moments where you opened your mouth and said something and you didn't realize it at the time, but once it got out of your mouth, you realized, man, I just showed how little I know (laughs) about what we're talking about here. Philip has that kind of moment here. So Jesus just said, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip says, okay, okay, okay. Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And I'm glad he didn't keep that thought to himself because we get to learn something through it. But Philip probably felt later like he should have kept that thought to himself because Jesus says in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip, maybe you think you're indicating that you know me well by saying, you could show us the Father. So if you will just show us the Father, that's all we're asking. And Jesus says, essentially, Philip, I've been showing you the Father every day you've been with me. Do you still not know who I am? If you can ask the question, you know, would you show us the Father? You're indicating you haven't really grasped who I am. The whole reason I came was to show you the Father. And then bring you to the Father. John told us from the beginning of this gospel, back in chapter 1, verse 18, when he talks about how the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he then says a few verses later, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. That's talking about the Son, the Word who's taken on flesh. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. In other words, by the Son of God taking on flesh and living among us, He has shown us... He has revealed to us throughout His life, His ministry, His teaching, His death, His resurrection, what the Father is like. And that's what He's telling Philip. Philip, I've been showing you the Father from the beginning. So He says in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? And that's really deep water right there. You can get over your head really quick. But what Jesus is saying is not that different from what he said earlier in John chapter 10, where he said, I and the Father are one. Jesus is not claiming to be a separate, second God. And he has not said that he's just another normal man. He has been saying that He is the Son of God. And there's only one, God. But He's the Son of God who's revealing God the Father. He's distinct from the Father as the Son, but He's not a separate God. There's one God and the Father and the Son are together. They're united. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. So if you've seen the Son, you've seen The Father. Like I said, deep water. (laughs) But that's what he's saying. So he says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. He's told them this before. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. The things that Jesus has done. And, you know, restoring sight to the blind and healing the lame and raising the dead even. The things that He has done have been meant to show us who Jesus is. Nobody could do these things unless God was with Him, Nicodemus said. Jesus is almost saying, I couldn't do these things not merely if God wasn't with me. I do these things because God is in me. Because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus had been giving His disciples a taste through His life and ministry of the very reason why He came, to bring us into the presence of God. He had already 
done that in some measure by coming Himself. The Father's with Him. You've seen Him. This is what I'm offering you. This is what I've been showing you. So that longing to see God that Moses expressed. Please show me your glory. That desire to be in the presence of God that David sang about. One thing do I ask. One thing will I seek after. That longing, that desire will be fulfilled for all who trust in Christ. It's not just for the Moseses and the Davids. It's for you and me. Everyone who trusts in Christ. And that's not only why he came, it's also why he left, and it's why he has promised to come back. He left to prepare a place for us in his father's house. He will come back to take us to be with him and his father. And that longing that's been expressed all throughout the Bible will finally be fulfilled as John describes for us in that vision at the end of the Bible, with the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And then John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place. It's your house. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then a little bit later, John says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. To that we can only say, Amen, and come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.